Hello and welcome to Iron Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zupko. Today we're going to speak about European energy politics, and I'm interested in two sides of that. Firstly, I'm interested in political side, uh, political side in terms of international relations, and the second one, second part will be about the book, which uh, we will present with uh, my guest today, who is Dr. Marco Sidi. Marco, welcome. Thank you. Marco Sidi is a researcher at Finnish Institute of International Affairs, specializing in EU-Russia relations and European energy policy. He holds adjunct professor positions at the University of Helsinki and Tampere University. Dr. Sidi earned his PhD from the University of Edinburgh and Cologne, focusing on the EU's external actions. His research covers energy and climate politics, identity politics in Europe, European security, and Italy's role in the European Union. Uh, there are two publications I would like to mention. First one was published in 2023. It's European Energy Politics, the Green Transition and the EU-Russia Energy Relations. And the second publication is European Identities and Foreign Policy, Discourses on Russia, published in 2020. So I'm very happy that Dr. Sidi accepted the invitation to our talk show. And let's start with the first round of questions. So what I want to do, I want to understand the differences between the realist, liberalist or neoliberal and constructivist uh, positions uh, on energy security, on energy politics. So let's start with the realist theories in international relations and account for the energy security and the pursuit of energy resources as a key driver of state behavior in today's global landscape. Yes, um, so realist uh, ideas are coming back uh, big time, I would say, in, uh, in the debates. Uh, particularly after uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, if we want to put it in a nutshell, uh, the realists uh, theorize the so-called energy weapon. So the idea that uh, energy is a tool in the uh, hands of a state uh, uh, to obtain strategic objectives. And um, so especially if you are um, a state that uh, owns um plenty of energy endowments then you can use uh, those resources uh, steer your trade and, and uh, um, leverage uh, on world markets uh, in order to achieve your foreign policy uh, goals uh, now these ideas were not so popular until recently as i suggested um, because before we had a predominant uh, um, uh, neoliberal or liberal, if you want, uh, approach, post-dependence and so on. Uh, now it's very much the case with, um, of course, Russia's gas and oil exports, but uh, the debate is even expanding. Uh, I mean, the realist, uh, let's say, logic is applied more and more also to uh, issues such as uh, China's control of um, uh, critical minerals for the energy transition and uh, green technologies. Um, of course, this is the Western perspective. Uh, the Russian and Chinese perspective would be that uh, the European Union, for example, is using its market uh, to influence uh, uh, energy flows, and China would rather focus on how the US, uh, for example, is using uh, sanctions and tariffs 
uh, to uh, curb its its uh, growth also in the green sector. I wanted to ask you when we speak about weapon energy as a weapon, can this be also turn upside down or around and can the states which are buying energy use buying energy as a weapon against states who export the energy this is definitely a possibility you know the concept of energy weapon is very broad and vague uh, it can be criticized in many ways but we can have this reading and this is definitely um, what the European Union did uh, after February 2022, uh, the attempt of uh, uh, depriving uh, the Russian state of uh, revenues from energy sales, uh, of course the logic was that these sales would go to finance the war in Ukraine. Um, so depriving Russia of these revenues uh, um, by um, excluding it progressively and from its main export uh, markets. And can we say a share of realist scholars in energy politics, for instance, when you have the global discussions, uh, are those scholars mostly realist or, or they are liberals or constructivists? No, it's, uh, I would say it's the heyday of uh, new realists again. Uh, so the idea of weaponizing energy. Uh, but for 30 years, uh, at least, you know, from the end of the Cold War, until the early 2020s, liberals uh, had uh, the upper hand. Um, so the logic that, you know, growing interdependence, energy flows would prevent uh, conflict. This, is, this was the rationale also behind uh, um, increasing um, energy relations with Russia, uh, building interconnections pipelines um, and also having asset swaps so you you sell something to Gazprom in Europe and um, the Russian side allows you to acquire a stake in a, in a production field for example this was all part of the uh, um, liberal uh, logic uh, in the mid 2010s uh, this logic started to be challenged so two energy scholars well especially Andreas Koltau uh, started talking about with Nick Sitter, uh, started talking about uh, the EU as a liberal actor in a realist world. Uh, then in 2022, the realist world sort of uh, took over um, and influenced EU decision making quite radically. So we are experiencing quite a change in, uh, in rationale for, for the European energy markets. There is the third camp, and that's quite popular nowadays, and that's constructivist perspective. So they use norms, ideas, identities that influence states' action and decisions in energy politics. So what is that perspective about? And maybe you can mention some updates that our students and international audience might appreciate. So as you as you rightly pointed out, uh, constructivists focus on issues such as ideas, identities. Uh, what does this mean? Uh, it means that, for example, a country's uh, history uh, and so the way national identities, so the key ideas about the nations were formed, influence the country's foreign policy. So, for example, if, uh, I mean, again, if we take the EU-Russia relations as, as, as an example, uh, for uh, three decades and partly uh, still today, we see that some member states uh, have different views of Russia from others. Uh, and 
of Russia's Russian energy uh, flows. So for a long time, uh, Poles and the Baltics were much more critical uh, uh, of importing energy from from Russia, even while they kept uh, doing it themselves th- themselves to an extent. Whereas the Germans were more uh, much more positive about it, and this relates to historical experiences. Um, of course, also to market factors, but historical experiences played a role. Uh, the idea of the Russian energy weapon, which we discussed, which can also be seen from a constructivist perspective, yeah, as, a, uh, as an interpretation of, of Russia's energy power. But uh, this idea was much more popular uh, in uh, East Central Europe and especially in the Baltics and, and Poland uh, before 2022. Whereas uh, for the Germans, uh, these energy flows were an opportunity, and not just an economic opportunity, but also a way of pursuing rapprochement. So this German idea of Wandel durch Handel, so the change through trade, which informed projects uh, like Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2, uh, it wasn't just about uh, um, economic gains. German diplomats really believed that, for example, German reunification, uh, the rapprochement with post-Soviet Russia had been possible thanks to this kind of diplomacy. Um, they were so-called diplomats in the Wirtschaft, uh, so the diplomats of the economy. Right. What about geopolitics? Now everyone is talking about geopolitics. How geopolitics and that concept suits into energy politics and energy policies? Again, so geopolitics uh, is another very uh, broad concept. Um, Actually, especially for students, uh, it's a good idea to check when it's interchangeable with international relations. And when it's interchangeable, we can also stick to international relations after all. But uh, geopolitics itself uh, is often associated with geopolitical competition. Um, So competition for the control of resources. You know, the basic definition of geopolitics is about uh, territory, uh, essentially. Then there are some other articulations. For example, geoeconomics is a related concept, which is about uh, essentially control of especially economic uh, resources within a territory. Um, so this plays a role uh, in, in the energy uh, field um, because, of course, natural endowments are essential in the energy market. Many students, they they use energy transition as a, as a concept or as a, as a word in essays, and some of them, they're not 100% sure how to use this concept properly, what does it mean, and who coined that that energy transition, that it is energy transition? Also, some of them, they're thinking, is this only related to the European Union, or it is related to United States, to China, to India? So can we please explain energy transition? What does it mean, where does it come from, and how to use it properly? So energy transition is another very broad concept, which... uh, uh, of course, it's not uh, just a European idea. It, it is a global and it should be a global concept. Uh, it relates to um, the urgency of tackling climate change. Um, to tackle climate change, you need to transition 
from uh, a fossil fuel based economy to a um, low carbon economy. So some people say that, uh, you know, green, we hear at times like uh, energy transition, green transition. Uh, some people argue that low carbon transition is the most accurate uh, because it, it specifies even better that it is about uh, abating uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so, again, like we focused a lot on the concept. Um, it is a global concept. Um, and we see other related terminology, for example, let's think of uh, the Green Deal. In Europe, we have a European Green Deal to pursue the energy transition. In the US, uh, the phrase is Green New Deal. <laughs> but we are talking about uh, similar things. In Korea, they have a, a Korean Green Deal, if I remember correctly. Uh, so it all uh, relates to the idea of decreasing emissions to achieve uh, uh, net uh, um, zero net emissions or climate neutrality by a set date, which for um, Western economies, so the US, uh, the EU overall, um, Korea and Japan is usually around 2015. We know that there are many regulations and uh, directives in the EU related to the Green Deal, to the energy transition. But then we have one critical viewpoint, and that's it, that some argue that the EU energy policies and those of its members, they operate like parallel worlds. This scheme is doing that, those states are doing other things. So what measures could be taken to better harmonize these two parallel worlds or spheres of energy policies? Yeah, well, uh, negotiations and consensus are, uh, I mean, not consensus, but achieving, uh, uh, let's say, uh, at least a, a minimum common denominator is the way to proceed. Um, so the, like I said, that the foundation, the legal foundation, uh, but also the political foundation of these uh, two parallel worlds are the EU treaties. Uh, energy is an area of shared competence uh, within the EU. Uh, it's specified in uh, Article 4 and 194 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, uh, um, uh, which has a formulation uh, that uh, uh, talks about European energy uh, goals and policies, but at the same time, uh, member states uh, retain uh, the right to decide their energy mix. Uh, of course, there are some constraints that have been agreed upon by member states themselves. Uh, you can decide your energy mix, but at the same time, member states agreed to uh, decrease uh, their uh, greenhouse gas emissions to uh, pursue certain targets. Um, so, you know, that energy mix in any case should include less and less uh, coal, uh, oil, and eventually also gas, and the choices between, you know, renewables, nuclear, uh, if you want, what type of renewables you want to have. Uh, um, but at the same time, you're right to say that uh, if we look at the you know, table with energy mix of member states, it looks like a mess. There's a lot of uh, diversity. Um, so the, the way to uh, address this is to um, 
while allowing for national specificities, which can also be, uh, say, logical. Uh, you know, Mediterranean member states have more uh, um, solar uh, uh, power. Uh, some countries like France and Sweden prefer uh, to have nuclear um, over other energy sources, let's say. Um, so within that, uh, uh, I mean, while considering these differences, uh, European Council and the European institutions are the setting where member states sit down to negotiate uh, common goals and also the mechanisms to regulate, uh, to uh, govern, sorry, uh, those common goals and achieve them. Do you think that uh, sort of... European Union Ministry of Energy would help, or would this be just another institution in the institutions of, or within the institutions of the European Union? So the key question is, uh, what powers would this minister have? Uh, you know, the founding treaties, the current versions of the, of the founding treaties state that energy uh, is uh, shared competence. So if you if you keep that in place and just create a new institutional figure, then not much is going to change. Like you know, with foreign policy, we have a high representative, but foreign policy is still a, a largely a national uh, prerogative. So uh, you know, the new institution is not enough to change the political uh, substance. Um, and we can even say that to an extent, we had, you know, um, uh, we have a, um, a commission vice uh, vice president for the European Green Deal. So some kind of, you know, quite powerful institutional figure uh, that plays a role. Uh, but uh, having the member states on board uh, would remain the, the key factor, um, regardless of the institutional position. What do you think about renewables in the European Union as a tool that is changing the landscape or even the legislation of the European Union? Is this going to the like right direction? So the quality of the legislation and the quality of implementation is better? Or do you think that since the announcement of the Green Deal, we are having sort of like stable, not much progressive uh, stance in the European Union? So when it comes to uh, legislation, um, we saw, say, an increase uh, in uh, um, speed, um, ambition as well, uh, from the second half of the 2010s with the so-called winter package, uh, when um, directives like you know, on renewables, on energy efficiency uh, were revised. And then the European Green Deal uh, works uh, within that framework. I mean, some uh, uh, new leg legislative measures were added, but the basic framework uh, has remained the same in evolution. Um, and we do see uh, progress if we uh, look at the overall targets that have been set by uh, this legislation. We see that there is an increase in ambition. Um, at the same time, um, perhaps one of the uh, one of the weaker points of this edifice uh, is the governance. I mean, we have a clear gover governance now. There is a governance regulation of the energy union. At the same time, it was decided that uh, the governance is bottom-up. Uh, let's say it's member states doing the reporting, following 
um, of course, uh, precise uh, uh, deadlines. Um, the Commission makes recommendations, comments on those progress reports, uh, to simplify a little bit. Um, however, there is no um, there is no strict uh, enforcement mechanism, and um, this is just you know a bit of speculation. You know, at a time when uh, uh, there is strong consensus on energy uh, on um, on a green transition on on climate policy, uh, like such a relatively soft uh, uh, governance mechanism can work. But if the weather changes, so if we have a big economic crisis and the so-called green lash, uh, so parts of the political establishment criticizing uh, climate policy, uh, it is possible that some member states just don't uh, implement. Uh, um, and it's difficult to, to induce them and to force them to, to, to do so. Um, but for now, you know, if we consider the various uh, economic uh, difficulties, the geopolitical challenges, uh, climate policy has retained uh, a good degree, good degree of priority um, for now. Right. One part of energy diplomacy of the European Union is that new initiative to buy energy supplies together. Um, there are, you know, a few platforms and, and they're trying to pursue that. What's your opinion about this approach and what sort of implications can you see? Yeah, so it's a, a way to uh, use uh, Europe's market power as a large importer of, uh, for example, gas. It's this idea that we find um, not just in the energy field, uh, but you know, using the, U, the the size of the EU energy market, uh, scholar, Edinburgh-based scholar uh, Chad Damro talks about market power Europe. Um, it can work to an extent, but it has several uh, drawbacks. Um, so one of them is that your uh, um, partners, I mean the the sellers of energy. Uh, of course, won't like this kind of uh, negotiation mechanism. And depending on the market circumstances, they might find also alternative uh, um, uh, export markets. Um, for example, if we think of uh, LNG, liquefied natural gas, uh, now actually Europe had to accept quite high prices because the market has been tight uh, for a while. Uh, the other, uh, if not drawback, contradiction in a way is that uh, the idea of, uh, um, uh, you know, steering uh, uh, imports from, from the top, uh, so aggregating purch uh, the purchase of gas, having, you know, uh, uh, EU uh, institutions or some EU bodies uh, controlling or having an oversight uh, on this, um, to an extent contradicts the free market logic <laughs> that the European Union ha has been propagating uh, for, for a while. Um, so it has, you know, it's not uh, um, a solution to all evils. And in some cases, it might even backfire depending on circumstances. Right. Let's speak about the book. That was published in 2023. The name, the title is European Energy Politics, the Green Transition and the EU-Russia Energy Relations. 
So I got a couple of questions about this book. And one is that it appears that you focus quite a lot on Repower EU as a concept. I would like to ask you why and what is your goal? Repower EU was uh, the European Commission's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, within uh, actually a matter of days, uh, if we think of the first draft, uh, first published draft of Repower EU, it's from the 8th of March 2022. So within a few days, the European Union uh, um, published this policy document, which um, made clear that now the EU aim to uh, cut uh, considerably. I think that the initial document talk, talked about two-thirds of uh, uh, gas imports. Um, and uh, so it became a bit of a mantra uh, in the EU that you know this is the goal and it has to be achieved uh, by uh, diversifying uh, fossil fuel imports away from Russia, increasing renewable production and energy efficiency. It was, and even in the subsequent version, the, the May 2022 version, it was a political uh, document or like setting political guidelines. Uh, um, and we can see <laughs> this also in some of the short-term outcomes. Um, it is difficult to, to imagine that the European Commission calculated all the possible market consequences that this would have uh, within such a short uh, period of time. At the same time, the logic of the document uh, has remained uh, um, the same and the EU has been quite consistent in its call of uh, at least decreasing uh, uh, for now, uh, substantially, um, EU, uh, sorry, uh, import, uh, gas imports from, from Russia and uh, not to forget, of course, oil imports um, as well. Many long-term contracts uh, have been signed with Gazprom in European unions and students are interested in what's going to happen with those contracts if they can't be fulfilled is the EU expecting like legal fights with Russian Gazprom or or how this matter is going to settle? Yeah, this is um, it's a good question, and there's several uh, aspects that also relate to uh, you know they change depending on uh, member states. Uh, so the contracts usually have a force majeure clause. Um, so if something major and unexpected happens and uh, the gas cannot be delivered, uh, then, well, the exporter, for example, uh, has a valid excuse, to put it simply. Um, the destruction of Nord Stream, for example, could be seen as one such uh, cause. Um, so, um, because, you know, the, the, the legal issues can come from either side, <laughs> the legal action actually from both the importing uh, countries and, and the exported. Uh, so at the same time, it is possible that there will be legal consequences. Um, the situation is quite complicated because um, a lot of this uh, um, energy trade uh, happened in uh, euros and dollars and uh, the currencies were you know, again, we could say weaponized or politicized, but uh, 
when the West started to enforce sanctions on Russia, froze uh, Russian funds, uh, then Russia didn't want to uh, receive payments in a currency that, uh, you know, where the reserves could be frozen. Um, so this is yet another issue that should be taken into account. Uh, then Russia devised uh, payment mechanism that you know the West said it was about circumventing sanctions. Russia would say no, it's because actually we we want to receive the money and not you know just fictitiously have it in some bank account and you freeze it. Um, but this could also play a role, you know, in uh, in, in the in the uh, legal uh, developments that we might see. Um, it's quite a complex picture. There is a chapter about EU-Russia energy relations in your book. And this is some of your specialty when, you re- when you're researching uh, EU-Russia relations. So can you please tell us a few words about this chapter? So this chapter, um, it's actually chapter six in the book. Uh, it's quite closely related to chapter seven, which is about repower you and what happened with the invasion of, of Ukraine. Chapter six, so the first one, it's a bit about the history of that energy relationship. Uh, so taking stock of over half a century of uh, growing energy trade between then Soviet Russia and countries of the then uh, Comecon uh, in East Central Europe and uh, Western European countries like West Germany, Italy, uh, um, Austria, neutral Austria back then. Uh, which started to import uh, um, uh, Russian gas in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, So uh, the chapter reviews quite a bit of that literature that you mentioned, or at least some of the uh, most prominent examples, uh, and provides uh, what is hopefully a handy summary uh, of different views and developments with a focus on... uh, the latest uh, developments, different perspectives of member states on uh, energy trade with Russia, which might <laughs> even surface. Um, so it is a relatively uh, succinct, but hopefully comprehensive introduction uh, to the topic. And then the students can, uh, um, of course, expand on it by uh, um, reading Uh, the literature that is referenced. For example, another uh, recent uh, book on the topic, or relatively recent, uh, completed before the the start of the the war in 2022 in Ukraine, uh, is Than uh, Than Gustafsson's uh, Red Gas, uh, which, you know, it's more extensive read. So students that is not just writing an essay, but a thesis on the topic might want to uh, read the details of how it all started uh, in the 60s uh, and and what happened um, later. You mentioned uh, students and there is a question from students about uh, Green Deal. I know you have a chapter about Green Deal in your book and the question is the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, Is it possible that that conflict might have implications that the Green Deal will speed up in the European Union. Yeah, this was uh, the idea of, you know, repower you. Uh, we decrease dependence on uh, Russian fossil fuels. 
by accelerating the transition. So uh, this is the logic. It's driven, of course, by the war in Ukraine, but also by uh, climate change and worsening climate change. Uh, at the same time, the war can have different effects um, because while the European Union accelerates domestic energy transition, it is also looking for uh, other uh, uh, exporters of fossil fuels. And to switch, for example, to import uh, less pipeline gas from Russia, you need to import more liquefied natural gas. So you need import uh, terminals for LNG, which not every country has, Germany, for example. Um, this means putting more money into fossil fuel infrastructure. And importing LNG is not necessarily uh, greener than importing pipeline gas. Actually, uh, you find reports showing that uh, if you import gas from uh, you know far away, whether it's the US, for example, uh, or or uh, or Qatar, uh, you also have to count you know transportation uh, emissions related to transportation. Um, also, another side effect is that the EU, by using its market power, can offer maybe higher prices uh, to uh, LNG sellers uh, that then start selling to the EU rather than to Latin America, for example. And Latin America markets, following on this example, that don't receive LNG could revert to coal. So you might, uh, let's say, not increase emissions in Europe, but you have an increase in emissions elsewhere. And of course, the planet is one. So <laughs> climate change is a global phenomenon. I also think that it's important to mention the origin of LNG, because as we know, in the United States, there is that share of gas, uh, you know, fraction and mining. And there are so many documentaries how environment is suffering in the United States when they're doing that uh, style of mining that natural gas. So on one hand, we can say, oh, it's a clean or cleaner energy, but what's behind, it's also very important. When someone is writing a book, that's that's considerable amount of time. So what was your research methods or how did you approach uh, this or those topics? Because all of them, they are quite difficult topics. It's not a simple topic that you can write while you're drinking coffee so so let's let's uh, you know shed some light on this you know so we know how a researcher works in real life yes um, so first of all the book is the result of uh, several years i would say almost 10 years of, of research uh, some of the chapters appeared in earlier versions as journal articles or conference papers um uh, and um, I received plenty of feedback. Feedback is very important uh, to uh, refine your ideas. Um, another uh, important um, aspect was um, keeping an open mind about you know, theoretical uh, approaches, especially because, as I was saying at the beginning of this interview, uh, the dominant logic in new Russian energy relations changed uh, quite a lot uh, during the timeline of, of the book um, so a um, multi-theoretical approach uh, was important to understand why a liberal logic was uh, uh, dominant uh, in the 2010s uh, and then uh, it was eroded and even overturned 
uh, to a good extent uh, uh, in 2022. So uh, theoretical plurality, um, data of course is also very important. Um, reading numerous sources, uh, uh, differentiating academic sources uh, from uh, more political ones, uh, and why not also uh, comparing and contrasting uh, different policy papers with different views. Uh, these are all useful aspects of, of this research. I also deal with the, with the Russian foreign policy, and I know that it's uh, not always easy to get information about Russia or from Russia. And there are various reasons for that. Uh, it's not only politics, but there are also other reasons. How did you get information about Russia? And maybe if you can recommend a way of doing this for the junior researchers, for someone who want to write about Russia, but is not 100% sure how to get information about Russia. No, uh, this is a very good question also because uh, circumstances have changed <laughs> again during the last few years. Um, I used to travel quite often to, to Russia uh, until um, 2020 because COVID was the first, uh, let's say, big obstacle to traveling to Russia where I had contact uh, with researchers. Um, reading their work was very, very useful. Um, Accessing uh, um, states, uh, um, so official Russian officials, is very difficult, and now it's especially uh, difficult. Uh, possibly, it's a bit easier to uh, to talk to representatives of the industry, so Gazprom and, and so on. Um, but you know, with the energy, we at least have the advantage that there are official data, and ultimately, we we refer uh, to those. Um, and, and this is, you know, an important aspect of the actual, uh, essential aspect of the actual energy trades. When it comes to public declarations, we can use tools such as discourse analysis, um, relate what policymakers say, uh, you know, with a constructivist approach to uh, ideas uh, and identities. Uh, so this is what we can do. We can work with what's available. Uh, what we maybe shouldn't do is uh, speculate too much. Because um, you, you find also, as you know, you find all sorts of uh, theories, conspiracy theories about uh, about Russia. We we can't really know uh, uh, what's in Putin's head until he does something. Uh, it's even difficult to tell. Who he listens to, and for example, uh, I'm not so sure that uh, the heads of uh, Gazprom, Rosatom uh, or of 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 Rasneft, were fully aware of what was going to happen in February uh, 2022, and I'm, I'm I'm quite sure that many of them were not so keen because it meant. Uh, big strain on their companies. The last questions for today's interview. When you write a book and when you research so many difficult topics like you do, the book answers so many questions, but also opens some more, maybe some new challenges for the research. So what would be your new research goals 
or what sort of implications this book gave you for the research work? Yeah, so if we stick to the topic, exploring the consequences of the decoupling, energy decoupling between uh, Russia and the European Union is very interesting, um, not just for you know the European dimension, but for the effects on global markets. We see a reorientation of uh, uh, Russian exports to, uh, let's call them rising powers, global south, uh, China, um, and the reorientation of EU imports. Uh, so this is one thing. Uh, uh, then there are some aspects of the energy uh, relationship that are, uh, I admit, uh, underexplored in the book and that are very relevant. For example, the nuclear sector. This is what I'm looking at now. Can we really uh, talk about the nuclear sector in terms of uh, dependence and vulnerability like we did for oil and gas? Well, actually, you know, the uh, trade of um, enriched uranium and uh, uh, nuclear fuel between uh, Russia and uh, um, EU countries that host uh, Russian uh, or Soviet uh, nuclear technology is continued. Uh, so it didn't become so politicized as in the case of oil and gas. What are the differences uh, what is the role of Russia's nuclear diplomacy, which is actually mo mostly oriented towards uh, non-Western countries? Uh, you know, there's always some new questions uh, to explore. Uh, what is Russia's role, also as a vast, uh, as, as um, the owner of vast uh, resources that are useful for the energy transition? Uh, so let's say that as we move to new trade patterns and also to, to new uh, constellations in the, uh, in the field of energy with the transition, there are new questions that, that come up. And the book is a snapshot uh, with, a with a specific focus between 2014 and 2020, every 2023. Uh, now, where do we go from there? Marco Sidi, thank you very much for your time, insightful thoughts about this uh, very important topic and also about your implications for junior researchers, you know, how to research energy politics, European energy policies. It's a topic that is emerging and I think we need more research, more researchers to bring some information about not only what's going on, but uh, what we should do what we should do for the future and how we should handle the green transition, new deals. Should we buy more LNG from the United States on one hand and you know support the green economy on the other hand? And also what to do with the Russian LNG coming to Europe? So there are many questions and I think this interview answers, answered many of them, but also portrayed or propose even more of them. So again, thank you very much for this. Thank you very much, Martin, for all the questions and the interesting conversation. Thank you and see you next time.